theyeshiva.net. Since Pesach is coming, I'm going to address this evening four questions that came in that are all connected to Pesach, the Passover. There were actually more than four questions, but I'm just categorizing them in four questions. Four very interesting questions, some a little sharper than others. I'm going to read the first question. In my opinion, it is primitive to believe that the events that we will all commemorate the following Pesach actually occurred. Come on. Maybe for irrational ultra-Orthodox extremists, which I used to be one of them, who take the Torah literally, they believe the story. But not for rational graduates of elite universities. Not for people who think. Come on. Do you really believe that the water turned into blood and then frogs came, over all the pl- came all over the place and then there were lice and then this thing happened and this thing happened and all the slaves suddenly went out of Egypt and then the sea split and they walked through the sea and they came to a mountain? Every nation tells its own stories. And this is the story that the Jewish people tell. The idea that the Jews actually emerged from slavery in Egypt as a people exactly 3,329 years ago, of course, is absurd. Then they were liberated by the creator of the world who emancipated them with a mission to the world to encourage it to be kinder, more just, more good, more holy, and aware of a single omnipotent deity that unites us all and expects us all to live in a certain way. You know, Rabbi, it's ridiculous. It's elitist, it's self-serving, It only alienates the rest of humanity. And the point is, it's simply not true, and I don't believe it. I agree with a rabbi who stated a number of years ago the following statement. You may remember there was a prominent conservative, there is a prominent conservative rabbi who lives in Los Angeles. He's the rabbi of the Sinai Temple. His name is Rabbi David Wolpa. And he proclaimed a few years ago on Pesach in front of 2,000 worshipers in his Pesach sermon and it was reported on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. And the rabbi said these words, According to archaeologists, there was no reliable evidence that the exodus took place. It almost certainly did not take place the way the Bible recounts it. But the truth is, it doesn't matter if it happened. The Torah is not a book we turn to for historical accuracy. We turn to Torah for truth. The story of the exodus lives inside of us, and that's the most important thing. What matters is that Jews created a beautiful myth about the idea of freedom. And then they enshrined it in traditions of eating crunchy matzah, horseradish, eggs dipped in salt water, four cups of wine, just to keep it lively. That's what matters, the spiritual idea behind the exodus, not if the story is authentic. Do you agree with this? Should I come to the Seder if I don't ever think the story happened? But I still think that people should be free. Question. Okay. <laughs> Question number two. This is also a very interesting question. All year, they don't stop 
hacking us about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. From when I was a child, it's, everything is around the exodus of Egypt. Twice a day, three times a day. Now it's around 40 times a day. I am sick of it. All day, the exodus of Egypt, the exodus of Egypt. Even if it happened, it happened thousands of years ago. A lot of things happened since then. Quite a few things happened since then. Why are we single-mindedly obsessed with this one event that happened literally thousands of... There are very important events that happened yesterday, that happened today, that happened a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Nobody even knows what's going on. But this, which occurred more than 3,300 years ago, we don't stop mentioning it every day of the year. And then when it comes Pesach, that's the whole mitzvah, to talk and talk and talk about it. Can you make sense of it? I really don't appreciate it. Okay, another, another question. If Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim happened, why are there no archaeological records? Why is there no mention of Yosef, of Moshe Rabbeinu, of the story? I mean, this is a big event, the ten plagues and the Jews leaving Egypt. Why don't we have any historical records of it outside of the Torah? Why didn't the Egyptians write the story? There's no objective source outside of the Jewish sources of the Hebrew Bible that it ever happened. Isn't that strange? Doesn't that prove that maybe it's not a story? And here's another question, a very different type of question. Maybe you can talk about, in your Amuna lectures, why Pesach, which is supposed to be the time of freedom, became the most stressful holiday in the Jewish year. Who's free? The word freedom and Pesach, almost to put them together, is a sad joke. We slave away. We're cleaning our homes, some of us, for weeks before, months before. This is called freedom. You prepare for freedom through slavery. And then you would think Pesach itself, finally you relax. Who relaxes? Non-stop work, non-stop pressure. And then the Seder itself becomes the greatest pressure. Often people are in a bad mood. They're miserable. People around the table are stressed. Everybody is starving. Somebody is in a bad mood. Somebody is angry. In, at tables where everyone has what to say, then everybody gets stressed out because everyone has what to say. Tables where nobody has what to say, somebody gets stressed out because nobody has what to say. Is there a way of making this a more enjoyable experience of freedom? Now, that's a very good question. <laughs> that's a very good question. Okay, I'm going to try to... Uh, address these questions. You don't have to envy me now, right now at the moment, for any of these questions. But uh, we're going to try to address them to the best of our ability, at least touch upon all of these questions. Whenever we address issues of truth the most important quality is intellectual honesty, for people to be intellectually honest. The first questionnaire, he asks, how can an intelligent person believe that the exodus of Egypt ever happened? Most likely it never happened. It's ridiculous. It's elitist. It's foolish, the whole idea. It's clear from archaeology that it never happened and so forth. With all due respect to the writer, who probably is a very sincere human being, you're not being very intellectually honest. And I'll explain to you why. 
I am not going to tell you what to believe and what not to believe. I'll never tell anybody what to believe and not to believe. Because as I learned from many years of experience, people believe what they want to believe. However, to say that somebody else's belief is foolish without really scrutinizing it is elitist and disrespectful. Also to say that the exodus of Egypt is not really important if it's happened or didn't happen is also, I find, quite disrespectful and even a little cruel. Because whether you believe it or not, you have to admit that many, many generations of Jews sacrificed their lives literally because they embraced this truth as reality. So you could say you have a difficult time believing it, but to say it doesn't matter, it's insignificant, it's valueless, who cares? The main thing is that there's a myth of freedom in our hearts really smacks with very profound arrogance and a lack of respect for thousands of years of Jewish history. I'm not judging your beliefs at this moment, but you do have to understand that when you come with a statement that everyone who accepts the story as fact is an idiot, is a moron, is somebody who doesn't think, and you basically believe that since you maybe read a few books or you watched a few videos, so you became Mr. Intelligent, and you are the only one who knows truth, and anyone who may have a different opinion must be from the Stone Age, and never thought, just understand that that also could smack from profound arrogance. What if the notion maybe is not so non-intelligent? Again, you're on a journey, and everyone is on a journey, and I always encourage people to search, and search a little more, and search a little more. But before you come to this conclusion that everyone who thinks otherwise than you must be an idiot and primitive and everybody is closed-minded and simply suffers from blind faith and dogma of fundamentalists, before you reach that conclusion, you should really open yourself up and speak to highly intelligent people. Before you come to the conclusion that Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, all the Tanoim and all the Amirayim, all the Rishonim, all the Acharonim, all the Goinim, the Rambam and Reb Sadiagon, Rashi and the Rajba, the Ramban and the Abar Benel, the Arizal and the Beis Yosef, <coughs> excuse me, the Alshech and the Chsam Soifer, the Balshemtiv and the Vilna Gon, etc., etc., were all blinded by dogma and fundamentalism. And finally, you are the one with the open mind. And all of them did not really think openly. In my perspective, it's really irrelevant if you're right or wrong. But I think that smacks from a lot of, that projects lots of arrogance and pompousness and a lack of intellectual honesty. So what I want to present here tonight is not an argument for you, the writer, or anybody else, to agree or disagree. But what I would like to help you open your mind a little bit and understand that maybe all the Jews who actually say that the exodus of Egypt happened, it was a reality, are maybe not as stupid and primitive, and dumb, and closed-minded, as you easily like to portray them. So, that's the real question. Is it a lie, or is it not a lie? Thousands of years later, how is anybody going to know if it's a lie or not a lie? But let's analyze it from a very rational, I'm now talking from a very rational point of view, and see why so many intelligent Jews, over so many generations who weren't there physically, and don't remember Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, like us, 
could accept it and say it over not only Pesach, but literally every day. And as the Torah says, their entire life. Then I'm going to get to the other questions. And here really I'm going to touch on something that we dealt with in Basics of Amuna number 6, which is if the belief that Torah is min Hashemayim could be rational. If accepting Torah as being divine is rational, or it's just blind faith, like every other religion says that their religion comes from God, because that's what they like believing, but it has no basis in rationality. A scientist, a searching, scrutinizing mind who looks for truth, not for dogma, not for tradition, could not accept it. So we discussed it then at length. We're going to touch on some of those points and a few other points, and then we're going to move on from there. I'm going to play devil's advocate for our writer tonight, and for many people, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say it is a myth. Let's ask the question, the Jews made up the story completely. People make up stories, Muslims have stories, Christians have stories, Buddhists have stories, various religions have stories, Jews have stories, they're called myths. Myths means stories that people and cultures concoct, they tell their families, they tell their children, it keeps their nation together, it keeps their story alive, and it certainly gives an excuse for holidays. Somebody once said, he says, I used to be an atheist, but not anymore because they have no holidays. By definition, atheists have no holidays. What are you going to celebrate? What are you going to celebrate? The fact that the cookies crumbled randomly? So in order to have holidays, you need stories. In order to have stories, you need some plan, you need some purpose, you need something going on. Okay, it's one reason. For the matzah knedlach, or the matzah brai, or uh, this food or that food, fine, he accepted his faith. It, It works for some people. Especially if you define the essence of Jewish holidays, as somebody once said. The essence of all Jewish holidays is the same. They tried to kill us. We won. Now let's go eat. The question is what? Sometimes it's matzah. Sometimes it's cheese blintzes. Sometimes it's apples and honey. And sometimes it's eating outside. Sometimes it's hamantashen. And sometimes it's, uh, it's uh, latkes. And once a year it's not eating, but eating before and eating afterwards. But it more or less focuses on food, even Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Most Jews know it as the day that you don't eat. But it's still focused more or less on, uh, on, the, on food. So I want you to think now openly together with me. Let's imagine that this story was fabricated. The story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim is a fabrication. Okay, who fabricated it? I don't know. Somebody fabricated it. But this can be explained in two ways. One is, it was fabricated by a man, let's call him Moshe. Let's call him Moshe. He fabricated the story. He is the one who made up the story. He wrote a document called the Sefer Torah. He gave it to the Jews, and they took him seriously. He knew it's not true. We're assuming now, devil's advocate, we're speaking to this person who says it's not true. Fine, granted. That's option number one. Option number two is... It happened in later generations. Somebody came up and wrote this work and didn't say he was there. He just said, this is an old story from previous generations. Let's analyze both, both, both ways of thinking and see rationally how that works. Okay. So let's say this man named Moshe made up a story. He makes up a story and it never happened. This story never happened. Jews did not leave Egypt. Maybe a few Jews left Egypt, but there was no big story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. There were no ten plagues. There was no Makas Pcheres. There was no Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. There was no Holmeiser with a Seder. There was no splitting of the sea. 
there was no coming to a mountain, there was no Maimed Har Sinai, certainly they weren't 40 years in a desert with manna, etc. All the stories in Hamisha Chumsha Torah never occurred. What happened? There was one man who made up these stories. He said, God called me in and God spoke to me and he said, uh, you should do this and you should do this. And then he gave me the Ten Commandments and he gave me 613 mitzvahs. This is all God told me. I experienced it and the people believed him. They believed him everything he said and then he wrote it in a document and he said, God dictated this whole document to me. This man, Moshe, and really it's all invented in his own mind. In fact, didn't so many religions begin this way? What happened with Muhammad? Muhammad said he was in a cave, and the angel Gabriel, Gavriel, came to him and revealed to him the will of God, told him he's the last prophet. Moses was a prophet, but he's the last prophet. That's what he did. And he comes out of the cave, and he starts galvanizing followers who start believing him. And he ultimately, this happens in the, in the, in the 7th century, in the 600s, and ultimately, Islam becomes a force. We know what type of force it's today. 1.5 billion Muslims. And what happens with early Christianity? You have a Jew, Yashkila, who also has visions. And then he has disciples and epistles, etc. So they argue this is exactly the same thing. You have the Mormons. You have Joseph Smith says he had a revelation. God spoke to him. And the rest is history. So this man, Moses, or whoever you want to call him, Chaim Yankel, call him Chaim Yankel, he gave himself a nickname, Moshe, told all these stories. He told stories about his birth. He told stories about how he was saved. He told stories about how he was raised. Whether that happened or didn't happen is not so consequential. He told all these stories about these 10 plagues that he did. He took 600,000 males between 20 and 60 out of Egypt. That includes, of course, children younger than 20, boys and girls, senior citizens above 60, men and women. Plus, he says he took out eight of Rav, many Egyptians. So 600,000 males in 20 and 60, plus females. So you already have 1.2 million. Now you have children and adults, plus Erev Rav, so you easily have two or three or four million people. He did it. He tells them he did it. And then he took them to a mountain, and God revealed himself, gave ten commandments, 40 years, 613 commandments, and here is a divine document. Let's take that option seriously for a moment. We have a very serious problem here. And the serious problem here is very, very simple. It's not so complicated to understand. Moshe Rabbeinu did not tell, this Chaim Yankel, or Moshe, did not tell stories that happened to him in a cave. He told stories that happened to each and every one of them. He told them that you, your spouses, your children, all of you, experienced all of these stories. You experienced the ten plagues. You experienced the exodus of Egypt. You experienced Maimed Harsina. You were all there. He didn't say something that happened to him in his bedroom when he was dreaming. He said something that happened to all of them. That means the moment he opened his mouth, what did they know? They knew that he is lying. Not one thing he said is true. Imagine I get up here in front of you, and I tell you today, in the middle of the day, I was sitting on my chair, and I fell asleep. Which happened. And in, <laughs> happens every day. And in my sleep, I had a dream. It also happened. And in the dream, God revealed himself to me. I'm not going that far yet. <laughs> and God told me that I should create a new religion that will liberate 
all of humanity and all of the Jewish people, beginning with Muncie. Okay, now, now, some of you, if I could present a good case for me, I didn't prepare for this, but if I could, you know, plan this for a few months and really prepare a good case, maybe some people in the crowd who are gullible and may enjoy it, may like it, especially if the message is warm and fuzzy and nice, you know, why not? But the moment I start telling you that all of you fell asleep this afternoon, that I may get right. And all of you had a dream, and God revealed himself to you, and he gave you this whole message about me being the prophet, immediately, plus that you all left Egypt, three million people, plus you saw ten plagues, plus you know that the food you ate this morning was manna that came from heaven. All of you saw it. Plus you have a rock with water rolling, plus you have clouds of glory, plus you all heard the sound of God. The moment I open my mouth, you know that I am a filthy liar. It's not a question. So that means we have to assume. Moshe cannot tell this story without every Jew knowing that he's not saying a word of truth because he's telling them a story about them, not about him. Yashka never did this. Muhammad never did this. Joseph Smith never did this. The Buddha never did this. And all of the other thousand, we know around 10,000 religions. I'm not going to name 10,000 religions right now. But not one of the 10,000 religions has a story like this. And there's a reason for this. The moment Moshe opens his mouth, you know there's not a word of truth that's coming out of your mouth. No three million Jews left Egypt against the Pharaoh who was the superpower of the time after the first males died. And we're in a desert and we're by a sea and the sea split and then we came to a mountain and we heard God's voice and he appointed you as his prophet and we heard Ten Commandments and everyone agrees. We immediately know that this is a fabricated lie. So now we have to assume that all the Jews decided together to say, okay, it's a lie, but you know what? It's cool. It's cool. Let's go for it. We all come together. Now, I ask you, I can't get three Jews in a board of directors of a shul to agree on how many copies to make. Okay? What do you need so much? We can't agree if there should be cholent or kugel or kishke or egg rolls or knishes. Because there's three Jews involved. And that's why anybody who ever does, does things, you, always, you make decisions and you move on. Here we got three million Jews to together say we're going to all fabricate a lie and a pretty big one. And for what? What's the lie going to give us? With the lie we're going to accept on us 630 commandments to make our lives miserable for all of eternity. Not just we. We, our children, our grandchildren, our great, 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 great grandchildren, forever? This is really cool. Now here's the fact. People can do it. I can't prove otherwise. Three million people could come together and decide something knowing that it's a lie. But we don't have another precedent in history. People are gullible, yes. McCann, I didn't mention you could sell people the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge with the Williamsburg Bridge. It happens in some of our communities all day. People buy lots and lots of stuff. We're going to get in another sheer, a lot of questions that came in about Amunas Chachamim and Amunas Tzadikim, how you know if it's good, if it's not good. Okay, that's going to be another sheer, God willing. You could sell people lots and lots of Titus Luxion. It's a fact. People are gullible. Not everybody scrutinizes. Not everybody is cynical. Not everybody asks a thousand questions. People are different. But here's the rule. It's almost impossible from what we know about human nature 
to get people, so many people, to know that something is a lie and consciously buy it and see it as truth and sell it that way intentionally, not one person, not 10 million people, a conspiracy of millions of people who all know that it's a lie and give it over, all of them, to their children. And what are they giving over? A religion that basically limits every aspect of their life. What they're allowed to eat, what they have to do, what they do once in seven days, prohibitions, 248 positive commandments, 365 negative prohibitions, and some of them difficult, including not an ounce, not a piece of leaven, not no bagel and no pizza and no vodka for seven or eight, seven days as it's in Chumash, the days of Pesach. Okay, option two. Option two is, it never happened, and nobody lied to the Jews, but let's say a thousand years later, which is what Bible critics like to say, a thousand years later, 1,500 years later, some scholar emerged, and he wrote a Torah, he wrote a religion, and he said, this is what happened. Nobody accepted a lie, the Jews themselves didn't decide to lie, it wasn't the Jews themselves. Some guy 1,500 years after the supposed time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, some guy, let's call him Moses Jefferson. If you want to call me, call him Moses Finkelstein. If you want, you could call him Schmetel Schwartz. Wrote a book. It's called the Sefer Torah. This was his testament. And he made up. He was a guy with imagination. He decided how God created the world. He decided Noyach. He decided a flood. He made up a whole story. A very nice novel. A fiction novel. But of course he said, it's all God. He didn't make it up. God made it up. He comes to this group, let's call them Jews or Hebrews, and he says, here is the truth of God. Really? Who are you? You're Moshe? No, I'm not Moshe. Moshe wrote this. That's what it says. Moshe wrote it. Who are you? I just discovered it. The truth we know, he wrote it. But he says, I discovered it. He can't say he wrote it, because it says that Moshe wrote it, by the time he Mitzrayim, right after that. So he has to say, I discovered it. So he comes to this group of Jews, and he gives them the trade on what happens. They all believe it. They all believe it. What's the problem here? They start reading the book. What does the book say? The book says that God revealed himself to three, four million Jews. They all left Egypt. They were all at Har Sinai. They all experienced Hashem's presence, and they were all told that they have to bequeath this story to their children. Non-stop. Communicate it to your children. Give it over every year. Put up mezuzahs. Put on tefillin. Build a sukkah to remember it. Eat matzah. Eat marah. Make a seder. Bring a carbon. Do this. Do that. All to remember it. And they're going to turn to this man, Moses Jefferson, and they're going to say, I don't understand. What's the question? Why did no Jew ever hear about such a story? He'll say, oh, 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 oh. (laughs) How would they hear? What do you mean, how would they hear? This is a fantastic story. I never heard this from my father, my grandfather. Does anybody ever heard it? Nobody ever heard it. So we are all these people that it happened to. So say, oh, that, those people didn't listen to God. They were wiped out. But the Torah says that this is an eternal people. 
Even when you're going to be in exile, you're going to remain alive. So where are these Jews? Oh, they're not here anymore. So we're not the Jews. So it doesn't apply to us. It applies to the Jews. It didn't happen to non-Jews. It happened to the Jews. They're obligated. What's that have to do with us? No, no, no. You're the descendants of those people. Really? We're the descendants? Why did my grandmother not mention anything? Why didn't she know these stories? Because they never happened. Why did nobody say, ah, they never did this? That nobody ever bequeathed this to their children, and you suddenly discovered this document, and who was this document given to? They believed this document, they embraced this document, but nobody did it till you discovered the document? How exactly does this happen? Now you have to remember one thing. You can't argue with these facts. Go back in history, and I ask you one question. Fifty years ago, were there one million Jews who believed Yitzhak Mitzrayim happened? 50 years ago. Yes. 100 years ago, were there 1 million Jews who believed Yitzhak Mitzrayim happened? Yes. 200 years ago? Yes. 500 years ago? Yes. 1,000 years ago? Yes. 2,000 years ago? Yes. You can go back 2,500 years, and we know from Greek history that there were Jews, at least 1 million Jews who believed Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So at some point, somebody managed to convince 1 million Jews that they left Egypt. At some point. When? Let's say 2,500 years ago. How did that man or woman managed to convince a million Jews that their ancestors left Mitzrayim and therefore they should accept Tariyag Mitzvahs. How? Either, either they received it generation from generation from generation from the first generation of Jews who decided to lie. Option one. Option two. No. A man right then wrote a book. He blamed it on Moshe and on God. He gave it to them and they said, wow, this is ultimate truth. God wrote it. Gave it to our ancestors, but nobody ever, ever, ever heard about this. Nobody heard about Yitzhak Messiah. Nobody heard about Maimon Harsinai. And therefore, we're going to accept once again the 630 mitzvahs that will limit our lives in every single aspect because a chalam shecholmu, a chayrim This man, Moses Jefferson, says he found this document. Here is the rule when you want to be intellectually honest. Look at any religion in the world and then ask yourself one question and one question only. How difficult would it be to fabricate such a story and sell it? That's the question you have to answer. How difficult would it be? How difficult would it be for you or you or you to go to a cave for 40 days, come out, lose a couple of pounds, which is always a good thing, and fabricate a story and sell it. How difficult it is, is it? If it's a story about yourself, it's not difficult at all. But if it's a story about four million people, you have to get a lot, a lot of people with you on your conspiracy. How difficult would it be for a delusional man, or for a mystic, or for a genius, or for a charlatan to get his religion up and running? Here I tell you that there is no religion in the world that made such a claim like Judaism. Why not? You could study 10,000 religions. Nobody said this. Nobody ever said that every Christian observed the moment when the Rebbeinu Shalom chose Yeshua Noitzri or chose Muhammad. Why don't they say it? Isn't it a nice story? Everybody was there. Everybody heard it. You know why they don't say it? You know why? What do you think? Because <laughs> it didn't happen. And if you say it, you're exposing that you're a liar. There's one religion that makes such a claim. Only one. You're not going to find any other religion. There is a Hindu group that makes such a claim that thousands, millions of people saw the experience. There's only one detail. They all died afterwards. 
Okay. So there's one man who knows that they all saw it, but they all died, so there's nobody to tell the story. That's why in Parshas Veschana, Perek Dalad Moshe Rabbeinu says words that really encapture everything I said. We read Chumash, we don't realize the power of the words. I'm going to quote Moshe's words. what is Moshe saying? Ask, ask around throughout history. Will anybody ever create such a story that God revealed himself to a whole nation, took them out of Egypt with miracles? It never happened. Nobody will ever say such a story. If you're making a religion, you have to be a moron and a fool because everybody will immediately know that you are a liar. To assume that millions of people conspire together Consciously knowing that it's a lie? Maybe. But there's no other story in history that we would doubt. I never heard anybody suggest that the liberal media wanted to get rid of President Bush. What did they do? They fabricated that there's a war in Iraq, a war in Afghanistan with many casualties. It never happened. Was there a war in Iraq and Afghanistan? I was never there. You were never there. How do you know? You saw it on the website, you saw it on the newspapers. That was all fabricated. But for that to happen, you need to have a lot, a lot of media. Lots and lots of websites. Lots and lots of people. Lots of radio stations come together and say, let's make up the story knowing that it's a lie. It's logical, logically assumed. In human nature, we do not see such a phenomena happening. People lie, people lie all the time. To get millions of people to lie together, to make their lives difficult, okay, maybe it happened. But it's certainly not foolish and primitive to say that there is quite an intelligent reason to accept it, just like you accept any other historical fact. Nobody doubts that Napoleon lived, nobody doubts that George Washington lived. Nobody saw Napoleon, and how much evidence is there for Napoleon's existence? The fact is, there's a few different books, a few different historians that write a story, and they work together, they collaborate, and you know that it's authentic. Of course, here you can't compare the story to that story. Napoleon's existence is part of natural phenomenon. Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim was a unique supernatural event. That's what makes it difficult. Also, Napoleon's existence doesn't impose any obligations on me. Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, of course, is a life changer. It's a game changer. That's why there's such emotional difficulty to accept it. But it's far, far from primitive. And if you look through Jewish history, you'll see something interesting. I never saw this anywhere, and I think it's true, though, from my research. Did you know of one story, listen to what I'm saying, of a Jew who converted to another religion, but not as a result of threats, or he needed bread, or tremendous social pressure, or out of fear, or any other factor but absolute intellectual honesty. An educated Jew who spent years studying Judaism 
and then without external pressure came to a conclusion and said, you know what? This is fabricated. Let me become a Christian. You have Jews who left Yiddishkeit. You want to get rid of religion. It makes you for an easier life. But to accept another religion completely out of will, out of volition, out of intellectual scrutiny. Not a Jew who never learned. An ignorant Jew or a Jew who was given rewards or a Jew who was given threats. But out of volition. You'll never find one in history. What about the other way? <laughs> Doesn't stop. Some of our greatest sages, Shmayav, Talia, Nebakiva, Reb Meir, Unkelos, Reb Evadia, etc., etc., in every generation. Many, many converts. Isn't that an interesting thing? And the answer is, you could study other religions. You could see their origin. And you have to ask yourself, how easy was it to fabricate? Quite easy. How easy was it to fabricate Judaism? Oh, it would have been a very, very difficult situation. And remember, you don't have more than two options. Either Moshe made it up in that generation and everybody lied, or some fellow made it up 1,500 years later and he lied and everybody accepted it. Option two, I want you to think about something else. We know who founded Christianity. We know who founded Islam. We know who founded many, many other religions. If it's option two, which is what many people like to say, at some point, somebody came with a document. He said, here, God wrote us. And everybody believed it. All the Jews believed it. And that's what's called Judaism. Why don't we have a record of who this person was and this moment in history? This is an earth-shattering event. A man emerged. He revealed a document that he said was divine that said all these stories. We have no record of it. We have a record of Ezra. Who was Ezra? Ezra revitalized Jewish life in the beginning of the second Beis HaMikdash. We have, we have a story of Nehemiah. We have a story of Mordechai. We have a story of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai who built Yavna, who saved Yavna. We have a story of Rabbi Akiva. We have a story of Rambam who codified Jewish law. Why do we have in our history a story of a man who at some point made an unbelievable revolution? He, he revealed the Torah. Who is this man? We never have such a story. Why not? Isn't that one of the most titanic, important stories? Remember, the Bible is the bestseller. It was always the bestseller, it's still the bestseller. It's the book that had the greatest impact on history. There's two and a half billion Christians as a result of the Bible, one and a half billion Muslims as a result of the Bible. The one who gave the world the Bible, we don't know. Muhammad we know, Yashka we know, so many others we know. This Chaim Yankel Finkelstein, who came up with the Bible and said God wrote it, and he found it, we don't know. There's no record of that. Isn't that interesting? We have every detail and nuance with other religions. Not this, why not? Where, where did he disappear to? Where did this man, second to Moshe, disappear to? Unless, of course, it never happened. <laughs> so there's nothing to write about. It never happened. Moshe gave the Torah. He wrote it. So yeah, you have to say either, he knew it wasn't true. He wrote a myth, and the Jews, who knew it's a lie, accepted it. Okay. That's pretty illogical. Or you say... Moshe came, he gave them the Torah, they looked at the Torah, and they said, yes, this is what happened. They had no difficulty accepting it. They weren't lying. They knew it's exactly what happened. They left Egypt on the 15th day of Nisan, eating, eating matzah, not eating chametz, having a seder the night before, and coming to a mountain and experiencing God's presence. There was nothing to lie about. And they passed it on to generation after generation after generation after generation without any interruption. Another interesting thing you have to ask yourself is, when anybody forges a document, 
There has to be a motive. Why are you doing it? You want power. You want authority. You want control. You want money. You want validation. You want some therapy. There's a reason, there's a motive. I don't forge documents in order to do nothing. There's a, a reason I'm doing it. I want to be a god. I want to be accepted. I want everybody to give me everything. Whatever it is, I want my children to have a secure job. So now we have to ask ourselves, the forger of Torah, what his motive was. If it was Moshe Rabbeinu, pretty bad motives. He doesn't give himself a salary. He doesn't even allow his children to inherit him. Everything goes away from his children. It goes to somebody else's family. In fact, he dies in the desert because he sinned. He turns himself into a black sheep who at the end, he's telling God, please, please, and I'm like, no, 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 you sinned, you stay in the desert. Pretty poor, pretty poor agenda. I don't know, I wouldn't fabricate a document just that everybody for thousands of years should say I was a sinner and I couldn't even make it into the promised land and my own children don't inherit me. So you have to say the Kayanim and the Levim had a big agenda here. Really? What do they get in the Torah? What do the priests get? They get nothing. They're not even own a house they're not allowed to own. And what are you, what are you uh, without real estate? They have to depend on you giving them 2% of your apples and oranges and peaches and cherries so they could survive. That's what they have to depend on. And then you have to give them a polka of your carbon shlomim so that they can have polka once in a while. And then when you finally sin and you bring up a of a sheep so they get a little more meat. And that's their whole sustenance is relied on it. The rabbis, rabbis don't have any position in Torah, if you know, if you ever realized. You have shoiftim, you have judges, and there's absolutely no privileges given to a judge or a rabbi. I know 2017 has seen some progress, but nonetheless, I'm talking about the man who forged, <laughs> the, man who, uh, the, man who forged the original document. What's even worse is, this Moshe who made up this story, how long can you hold on to a lie until it's proven that it's a lie? Okay? He writes in this tale of things that if you're writing a document, you don't write it. You know why? Because everyone is going to see you're a liar. You know when they're going to see you're a liar? The first Shemitah. He writes in Parshas Bahar, the seventh year is going to come, no plowing, no planting, nothing. Imagine, nothing. It would be like me telling you once in seven years, you have a savings account in Switzerland. The savings account generates tremendous, tremendous interest. And once a year, you give everybody a checkbook and everybody could take anything they want from the account. Once in seven years, everybody. Jews, non-Jews, animals, everybody. Remember, fields was everything. Once in seven years, all the dividends, all the growth, all the produce belongs to everybody besides me. Me like everybody else. So the man asks a question. Parshas bar v'chisoymru. Manoichal. A whole year, no planting, no plowing, no sowing, no harvesting. What are you going to eat? She says, don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to create so much blessing on the sixth year. You'll have for year six, you'll have for year seven, you'll have for year eight. Sometimes you'll have for year nine. If you have a year of Yoival afterwards, you have to rest the earth in two years. Knew the first Shemitah is going to come. The Jews are going to say, Really? What happened? You can't make up these things. Moses Jefferson is not in control of the weather. He's not Al Gore with global warming. You see what happened to the global warming prophets. We see what happened to the global warming prophets. And over there, they had enough scientists to, so to speak, back them. You come up with this idea of Schmidt, the first year of Schmidt, you're a filthy liar. This God said, get out of here. This is God's document. 
Why would you even write such a thing, Shaita? Why do you write another thing? You know what he writes in Parshish Kisisa? Three times a year you should go up to the Beis Hamikdash. You should go up to see God's face. There's a problem. If all the males go, what happens? What would happen if today in Israel all the IDF would take a vacation for a week and go to Hawaii? There wouldn't be anything left, Khalila. Yeah? Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, there would be anything left, Khalila. The Torah says three times a year, all the males go up and you chill out, you celebrate for seven days. Really? And all the borders are open, so what does he say? Nobody's going to desire your land. Imagine what happened the first Pesach. And there was a massive... You don't write such stupid things. You don't make such promises. You make promises that people can't prove that you're a liar. That's what people do all the time. Most promises you get from people are what? Things that you can't disprove them. And then you tell me that there's only one species of animal in the world that has split hooves and doesn't chew its cud. The chazer. Really? You're fabricating a document, Moshe Jefferson, three and a half thousand years ago before Google Maps. And you're telling me there's one species. They didn't know about Australia then. They didn't know about the Americas. You have to be a fool to write information that people are going to show you're a liar. They're going to mock you in the face. You don't write such things. And then you have two major predictions that are mamish senseless. You speak to the Jewish people and you tell them, you're a minority, you're going to remain a minority, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be in exile, you're going to be hunted down, but you will never ever disappear. Really? The greatest empires disappeared. How do you know they're not going to disappear? How do you know they're going to go into exile? How do you know they're going to remain a minority? And it happened exactly that way. Then you say something even more astounding. This little, little nation are the ambassadors of God, Mamleches, Kayan, and Vigay Kaddish, to ultimately change the world. Really? You predict this three and a half thousand years ago, you blame it on God? Why do you say such things? Who would believe it? But you look at it happened. Now if it just happened, you say Jews had mazel. They survived. The Egyptians didn't survive. The Assyrians didn't survive. The Babylonians didn't survive. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines didn't survive. The Jews had mazel. Fine. Fine. Kakarocha sometimes also have mazel and they survive. Okay. But he predicted it. And they didn't only predict survive, predicted that they're going to change the world. They're going to become the most important force in transforming the world as God's people. How do you know all of this? Why are you writing all of this? The first time Jews disappear, like most empires, you know right away this is a false document. This is whether you go theory one or theory two. Unless, of course, you're not afraid to write about Shemitah, you're not afraid to write about Shalosh you're not afraid to write that the Jews will be eternal, you're not afraid to say Jews will change the world. Because you're following, you're taking dictation from the creator of the universe. And hence, my dear friend, it's not primitive, foolish, and illogical for a Jew in the 21st century to say that the Jewish people left Egypt on the 15th day of Nisan. Geographically, physically, not just in your imagination, and seven weeks later they were at a mountain. 
In fact, I want to read for you, to you something a non-Jew wrote. This is a non-Jew. His name is Paul Johnson. He has a book called The History of the Jews. I want to read you a paragraph of his. All the great, as I told you, I think, last time, if a Jew would write this, people wouldn't like it. A non-Jew writes it, it's fine. Quote, All the great conceptual discoveries of the intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they have been revealed. But it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jew has this gift. To them, we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human. The sanctity of life and the dignity of the human person, of the individual conscience and of personal redemption, of the collective conscience and of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind without the Jews, this might have been a much emptier place. The President of the United States of America, John Adams. I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize man than any other nation. If I were an atheist who believed or pretended to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance has ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequentially of all civilization. Granted, but the man who wrote the Torah, Chaim Yankel, what's his name? Chaim Yankel Tadris Finkelstein knew all of this before. He wrote it. Now you look at the document and you say, whoa, if you were to tell me that tomorrow morning the sun is going to rise in the west and set in the east, I'll tell you I'm a shugana, which you may be. If tomorrow the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, I'll go, whoa, what does this guy know that I don't know? And I'll say, you know what? Once in 5,770 years, apparently this is what happens. But what happens if he predicts this again and again and again? And every time it's abnormal and it happens. And he says, God speaks to me. At some point, I don't know if I'm completely crazy and mashuga to say, you know what? Maybe the guy has access to some information that some of us don't have access to, which we call nevu, which we call prophecy. This is besides... Everything we said before. So now I come to my dear friend who asked me this question, a few people, and I say like this, you're a good man, but I want to suggest something to you. Stop confusing yourself and confusing your children. At this Pesach Seder, I tell you, you could say these words, Avadim Hashem You could say it with intellectual clarity, with an open mind, with open eyes, with conviction, and with critical, inquisitive curiosity. You don't have to shut down your brain and close your eyes in order to actually look at your children and say, our ancestors on this night, this day, left their Egyptian exile. On Pesach, 3,329 years ago, we were set free. We sought, we experienced to the extent that against all odds, we undertook a journey into the wilderness. 
and we are all still part of that incredible journey. Our mothers and fathers gave it over to their children, who gave it over to their children, who gave it over to their children. We live it, we embrace it wholeheartedly, we pass it on, and we are capable of completing the journey. It happened in real time, in the real world, just like you and I are here today. I want to discuss the person who spoke about their migraine headaches when they hear the word Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And uh, I'm going to go here from the realm of uh, maybe more uh, a conversation about history to the realm of the psychological and the emotional. I think it's important to understand what Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was a little bit in a more global fashion. And then you tell me after this if it still gives you a migraine headache. The problem is when we hear the word Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, like many words of Judaism, we associate it with certain ideas in our mind and they stick, they stay in us and we don't have an ability to liberate ourselves from it. I think it's important to be able to understand that some words, when you get older, you have to revisit and ask yourself, maybe you don't understand what it is. You see Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim as simply, Moshe said, Hevra, let's go. And three million Jews marched out with dough because they couldn't get it into the ovens, like his speak, and they ran out with dough and they went to the desert and you're like, okay, it happened, fine. Why don't you stop mentioning it? Let's move on. Why don't we talk about what happened last week? The truth is, I want to explain to you for a moment what Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim really is and why Jews mention it constantly. When you understand what it is, you'll understand immediately. The question is not why we mention it twice a day. The question is why we don't mention it every hour of the day. And maybe every minute of the day. You see? They tell a story that there was a Meshulach, a Jerusalem Meshulach, a collector of Tzedakah, who used to go around from building to building in Yerushalayim to collect money for yeshivas. He did this for 30 years. He would daven v'sikin, 7 o'clock in the morning, he would start collecting... And he would go till 7 o'clock at night. He would drag his weary feet, go up steep staircases till he got to the top of the building, go from house to house, collect the money. And he would always say, if only, if only there were no buildings in Yerushalayim, there were single-story homes, how my life would have been so much sweeter. One day, a Jew comes over to him and says, Reb Melech, I'm buying you a lottery. He says, Gewaldik. He says, 240 million shekel. Beautiful. Great. Maybe I'll win. He says, Reb Melech, what's the first thing you're going to do if you win the lottery? What are you going to do? Without thinking even for a moment, he said, the first thing I would do is install elevators in all of the buildings of Yerushalayim so I don't have to climb up the steps anymore. This, of course, thank you, this, of course, describes a certain mindset. We say in the Haggadah, If Hashem would have not taken us out of Egypt, we would have still been enslaved. Really? What does that mean? We really, in 2017, in the 21st century, I mean, the Egyptian dynasty of the pharaohs has been a relic of history for a very, very long time. Between 1313 before the Common Era 
in 2017, some water came under the bridge. A few things happened. The Egyptian dynasty is gone for thousands of years. This has been more than 3,300 years ago. What do we mean? We sit down at the Seder and we say, if not for the Exodus, we would have still been slaves of Pari in Egypt. The Roman Empire is gone much later than Egypt. The Babylonian Empire is gone. The Persian Empire, the Assyrian Empire is gone. Punct, we would have still been by Pari in Egypt. Three and a half thousand years, nothing would have happened. Isn't that a strange comment? But the truth is, the Haggadah is telling us something very profound that we have to understand. The exodus of Egypt wasn't a geographical exodus alone. That was one part of it. There was something much deeper. What happened by Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was the vocabulary was transformed. A vocabulary of freedom was invented. What's the symbol of Egypt? The pyramids. When you look at the pyramids, what do you see? Basically, there's the bottom level, and the bottom level supports one level on top of it, and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and then there's one on the top. That captured how humanity thought of itself. Humanity thought of itself. Everybody is born to fulfill a certain task, and ultimately there is the bottom level, which supports the higher one, the higher one, the higher one, which supports the demigod called Parai, and he sits on all of them, and your whole purpose is to hold him up. Nobody can even imagine the concept of freedom. Nobody could think about life that existence is about me. I am not a means for Parai. I am an end in and of myself. Nobody cannot think that the world is not going cyclical, just the same thing over and over and over again, that there's something called progress, transformation, that you can get out of the status quo, that you could dream about a different life. Everything is fixed for eternity. Who you were born, that's who you are. Some were born slaves, some were born aristocrats, some were born gods, and some were born roaches. And you are who you are, and you remain like that forever. Nothing ever, ever changes. What Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim did was, it introduced not only physical exodus, it introduced a new vocabulary. It introduced a vocabulary of freedom, a vocabulary that what you are today, you don't have to be tomorrow. And what you were yesterday, you don't have to be today. Instead of the pyramids, look at the menorah. The exact opposite. What's the menorah? The menorah is you have the base on the bottom, and then on top you have all of the lamps. In other words, the leader is not on top. The leader is actually on the bottom holding up and empowering each lamp to shine on its own. So Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim really was the birth of spring of humanity. It took the humanity out of a state of winter, darkness, hibernation, and it allowed it to experience Aviv, it allowed it to experience spring. That's why Shomer is Chodesh Aviv. You have to guard and make sure Pesach is in spring. Why? To the point that we have to add a month, a leap year, in order to have Pesach in the spring. Why is it so important to have Pesach in the spring? Because Pesach essentially represents the spring of humanity, the spring of civilization. When humanity started to blossom, without Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, human history would have been different. It's not that we would have necessarily remained there geographically. It means that all of civilization would be stuck in a standstill. There would be no development, no progress. 
The concept of change would be non-existent. It's not only the people left the land. Of course, that was major. It's not only the oppression stopped. It's the idea that the script of the world was rewritten. The idea that the human spirit can soar and break down all shackles, all restrictions. So now, think about this in your own life. Think about this in your own life. Do you ever wake up in the morning, anybody here, and say, I'm not going to be a victim any longer. Even though I suffered trauma, even though I suffered abuse, even though I still suffer abuse, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. My trauma and pain will not define me. Do you ever hear an inner voice that says, I will transform myself. I will not be a slave forever. If you hear that voice, that voice is a credit to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That voice was created and introduced in the world by Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That's what the Maharal writes in Gvuras Hashem, I think in Perik, in Perik Mem Aleph, that it wasn't just a timely event then. It transformed the perspective. So therefore, every heart that has ever moved to transcend fear, do you ever tell yourself, I'm not going to be a slave to my fear, to break a barrier, to go beyond the status quo? What about when you're determined to battle injustice, to speak up against a crime in your community, a crime happening in your schools, a crime happening in your shuls, a crime happening in your Daladamas and your four cubits. Every time you say, I'm going to transform my life for the better, I'll subdue an addiction, I'll confront a bad habit or attribute. This is all because that's exactly what Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim introduced into the vocabulary of humanity. Every time you stand in front of a mirror and you declare, I will not settle for mediocrity any longer. I will not remain forever a carbon of others. I will not remain codependent and I will not build my life on the validation of this one or that one who cares nothing about me. I will not be a victim not to lies, not to instincts, not to abuse. That is a re-experience of the moment that Moshe stands in front of Pare and says, Shalach es ami v'yavduni. Let my people go and they will serve me. Pesach gave us the vocabulary of freedom. It was a new vocabulary. Where would we and humanity be without it? And what can your future look like with it? So why do we mention Yetzirah Mitzrayim twice a day? What is a more important message in lives of young men and women of all ages, of all stripes and of all colors, than the message that you are empowered to actualize your potentials without any person having the ability to hold you down in chains. That you are, you are an ambassador of the divine who is infinite. And because you're an ambassador of the divine who is infinite, you are also infinite. And therefore your light is infinite, your love is infinite, your confidence is infinite, and your hope is infinite. And nothing in the world can stop it. Nothing in the world can destroy it. Nothing in the world can tarnish it. If it was up to me, I would mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every single moment of the day. Before you make a decision, 
before you approach a decision, before you make the next move, if you can live life from this space, then you're living life. If you're not living life from this space, then by definition, I'm living a more enslaved life. The Seder is simply the central moment when we bring all this energy into focus. But the idea of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is essentially the language of every free human being. You can't dream without Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's hard for us to imagine what did the world look like before, but that's what it looked like. Paroi was an absolute dictator, and that's how humanity went. It was a state of darkness. What's Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Chodesh Ha'aviv. The trees came to life. The human neshama, the human spirit, the human spirit came to life. Okay, let me address now the last question. Oh, wow, it's late. Let me address the last question. The last question was, if this is the holiday of freedom, why is there so much stress? Why is there so much hard work? I want to make three points, and I'm going to make them swiftly. Point number one. Pesach teaches us something very profound, and that is freedom could never be taken for granted. If you don't work hard for it, it disappears. Freedom is not a free gift. Some of us were born in the United States of America, which is a blessed country. We take freedom for granted. You never take freedom for granted. It can disappear in a moment. We are blessed to live in a generation where, relatively speaking, there's so much freedom in so many areas. But some of us sitting in this room, even though you live in America, you grew up in situations where you have no freedom. Where you suffer, suffered, and some of you suffer, continuous oppression from various forces. So you know that you can't take freedom for granted. Freedom comes through hard work. Freedom takes sweat, tears, and sacrifice. The moment you stop working for freedom, forces of oppression take over. The natural status quo of people, of some people is, that they live by oppressing other people. If you don't fight it, if you don't stand up for it, you lose it. This happens continuously. How many calls or emails do I get a day? about molesters who continue to molest children in certain communities. And when I ask the people who are calling me, why don't you call the police? Why don't you call the authorities? They always have the same answer. Rabbi Jacobson, you'll never understand how things work around here. You'll never understand. We live in a pyramid. This is the way it is. We're on the bottom. There's those on the top. And then there's the one on the top. And everybody just has to serve and serve and serve. Destroy their spirit, destroy their freedom, allow people to suffer, and nobody's allowed to open their mouth because you'll be thrown out, you'll be expelled, you'll be excommunicated. This is a mentality of oppression. And it happens all too often and all too natural. So Pesach doesn't come easy. Freedom has to be fought for. Jews always understood this. You have to fight for freedom. Freedom takes courage. Freedom takes sweat. Freedom sometimes takes tremendous mysterious nefesh. Freedom takes a lot of sacrifice. Pesach doesn't come easy. 
Pesach comes through hard work. Americans used to know this because the early pilgrims who created this beautiful country modeled it based on Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim. Moshe was their hero. The seal of a, they, they wanted the seal to have the image of Kriyas Yamsuf. All of them spoke Hebrew, the founding fathers, the Puritans. They were really steeped in Judeo values, Judeo values of the Bible. They understood this very well. After hundreds of years, people start taking their gifts for granted. But you don't take these things for granted. Freedom comes through education, and it comes through hard work. There's also one more thing I want to say. What do we tell? We say this to one of the children. Rasha ma'awaymer, what does he say? What's this avoid? Why are you working so hard, Tati and Mami? What are you sitting and you're trying to do, Haseba? You ever saw people trying to do reclining on Pesach? You see how hard they work? The whole reason you're reclining is to be royal. You see how hard people get nervous and anxious because the pillow moves, whatever? Haseba is not working out. Then you start with the horseradish, with the murder, and he's a host. He's, he's coughing and he's crying and he's weeping. And then there's the Kedai Achilles Pras. If he does his Achilles Pras in three minutes, so imagine how fast the poor guy is eating that matzah. One kazais, another kazais, and he's rushing and rushing. Tata, for me, liberty looks very, very different. First of all, you sit down on the couch, you open a twig of beer. You watch a tennis match between two people in Czechoslovakia you never heard of. You relax, you fall asleep. What's this whole thing? Kaddish, Urchatz, Karpas. You wash your hands with a bracha, without a bracha. You have kavana for the mother. You don't have kavana. If you didn't have kavana, you have to do it again. And if you spit it up, if you vomit it, you have to do the whole seder again. And then when it's all over, we start with Chad Gadian. Come on. Father, your religion couldn't find a better way of celebrating freedom? How does that answer a question? Since when does punching out teeth answer any questions? You say it answers a lot of questions, yeah? It's almost like the guy who comes to the bank at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and he comes to the woman standing by the teller by the bank and he says, I need to make a withdrawal right now. She says, it's 4 o'clock, the computers are closed. He says, I'm a customer here for 19 years, I'll withdraw right now. I'm so sorry, it's 4 o'clock and he says, I ask you, I demand you, I will sue you. And she says, I'm so sorry, I apologize. For 35 minutes, he's bothering her and she's apologizing and explaining to him that the computers are down and she can't do it. Finally, the manager of the bank comes out and says, what's going on? And the guy says, I'm a customer for 19 years, I want my money and I have to withdraw right now $450,000 for a down payment. I want you to give me that money. The guy walks over to him and punches him in the face and says, get out of my bank. He gets up and he walks out of the bank. The woman chases him. She says, I just want to ask a question. Yeah? I'm speaking to you and speaking to you and speaking to you. You don't move. This guy punches you in the face and you just leave the bank. Explain it to me. What's the difference? He looks at her and he says, you know, you said it, but he explained it. What's <laughs> How does blunting somebody's teeth explain anything? One of the answers is very, is very profound and very simple. And that is, this child is asking a good question. Why is freedom associated with work, with avoida? The answer is, okay, what is your philosophy in life? Your philosophy in life is no work, right? Freedom means no work. No problem. Why? Nature. 
Just follow your nature. Why do you have to challenge your nature? Why do you have to work on yourself? Why do you have to discipline yourself? Why do you have to curtail your nature? Why do you have to transcend yourself? Why do you have to not give in to every habit and every addiction? Nature! Nature? You were born without teeth. You were born without teeth. In fact, many animals are born with teeth. A human being is born without teeth. But what would happen if we would remain that way? We would forever nurse our mother's milk, which may have been very healthy. I may have been a little skinnier than I am today. But thank God we grow teeth and we stop nursing and we can eat real foods. Animals, many of them are born with teeth, but animals also within a few hours of their birth. They walk and they run. I once saw a gazelle give birth and five minutes later the baby was running around. And I'm thinking, why can't my babies do that? When we have babies, 40 years later, they're still babies. Ask their mothers. My little, little baby, 60-year-old baby. A mother once told me my 60-year-old baby was honored last night at the dinner. 60-year-old baby. The animals already lived three lives, three Gilgulim, and he's still growing up, still comes home to get his mother's blintzes and kreplach for Shana Rabba. What's the difference? Nasa Adam, Ayyemir Elikim, Nasa Adam, the Yismach Moshe says... Hashem tells every father and mother, Nasa Adam, I need you to create a human being. Animals are created and they're finished. A little training, a few months, a few years, they're ready to roll. A person, till you're 13, you're not fully developed. And we know it takes many, many years. Why? Because the definition of a human being is, I'm not created complete. The journey of life is to enhance, to grow. Ma avoida zois lachem, you really believe no avoida? Hakayashinov. Why are you using your teeth? You understand you're born one way and then you grow and you develop. Freedom comes through work. Self-discovery comes through work. Enlightenment comes through work. Emancipation comes to work. Through work. To discover your soul and your true power, you need avoida. To say ma avoida zois lachem sounds nice. But without that, I remain a great slave. A slave to my most external self. A slave to my instincts. A slave to my sluggishness. To my laziness. I guess, however, I should add one thing. And that is, people do overdo it. Meaning, sometimes we feel that to have a real Pesach, we have to be miserable and stressed. And that's a terrible, terrible mistake. As somebody once said to a woman, a big Rav once said, a big Godlebi, someone said to a woman who was cleaning for Pesach, he said, I want you to remember two things. And that is, dust is not chametz, and the children are not the carbon Pesach. <laughs> two things to remember. We have it sometimes embedded in us that religion equals misery. The more religion, the more holiness, the more dejected, the more stress. It's really the other way around. Yes, there's avoida, haki shinov. Freedom takes work and we don't take it for granted. But it's man It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to realize that you're free. It's a time to realize that you're not a slave. It's a time to celebrate yourself, your soul, your relationship with your family, your relationship with Hashem. Somebody asked me, Rabbi Jameson, what's the most important thing to do at the Seder? 
I said the most important thing that the Seder is not before doing. The most important thing that the Seder is to be relaxed. What did you say? To listen. Yeah, relaxed people could listen. To be relaxed. To speak to your children. To tune into the life of your children. To listen. To encourage people to ask questions. Tell your children and say, every question you ever wanted to ask from me, ask. I want to hear everything that's on your mind. I want to hear all of your questions. Free people ask questions. Slaves don't ask questions. Slaves are told, this is how we do it. Okay, you don't like it, leave. Free people ask questions. They wonder. You tell your child, tonight I want to hear all of your questions. What does a question mean? Question means we're not stuck. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another approach. Maybe there's more depth. We're not stuck by the status quo. The first prerequisite of the Seder is be present. Be wholesome. And I always say to fathers and mothers, if you need be, Erev Pesach, take a nap for an hour and a half. More important, the murder will survive. The wine will survive. The charoises will survive. The orange juice will survive. You need to take a nap, take a nap. Relax, rest up. Come, it says, the kinders on nishtan shlafen veden. That's what the Shulchan Aruch says. Because today there's another problem. The kids are not sleeping, the adults are all sleeping. The adults, let's get it, let's get, let's get it over with. I'm ready for Leo Anavi. Leo Anavi, come, the adults are sleeping. The children are not sleeping anymore. The Chazal were worried that the children should fall asleep. I'm not worried about the kids, they're all up. But the adults are already snoring at the beginning of the Seder. That's the question. How do we get adults to stay up? Don't go to the Seder with guilt, with obsessions. You're not bad. God loves you. Don't approach the Seder with pressure, with guilt. It's a horrible experience. Walk into your Seder and tell yourself... What if I could experience myself as the freest person in the world? That's what it's all about. Everything will fall into place. And don't worry. The most important thing is to listen, to talk, and to enjoy each other. I'm going to conclude with a word from the Kloisenberger Rebbe. The Kloisenberger Rebbe said, It says in Parsha's boy, V'hoya ki yoimru when your children will tell you what is this work that you're doing so you should respond tell them about Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim and the Chazal interpret this Pasuk as referring to whom? to the Ben Russia, to the wicked child asks the said the Gemara when it says it represents joy what's the joy that you're going to have a child who's going to sit down at the Seder table, he's going to look at you, he's going to say, are you guys crazy? Really? Less than a kazayas? Really? You're going to start, sit now with a scale and tell me how much a kazayas matzah, zubchayim no, chazoynish, how they did in Yerushalayim, how they did it in Bnei Brak? And you're going to tell me the argument about Achilles Pras, three minutes, four minutes, six minutes, six and a half minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, with a stopwatch? Really? Who invented this religion? Who creates such neurotics? Where do you come up with these ideas of freedom? Ask the Kleisberger, what's the simcha that you have a child 
instead of being enthusiastic in the Seder, setting up a Skyrim, and Mamish preparing 99 divrit for the Haggadah, you know, you always have that child, 15 years old, he prepares 99 divrit for the Haggadah, and he starts, and it's Gewaldic, the Nachas begins, you start shepping the Nachas, after 45 minutes, you want to kill yourself. <laughs> But, but it's Kevaldik and Nachas, but at least, you know, he's involved. Then you have another kid, he's like, uh, uh. you have something to say? Why do I pay tuition? Why do I pay $9,000.20 tuition if you have nothing to say? Of course, I have another thing. It's a crazy thing. What's the Simcha? What's the Vahoya? You know what he said? He said, the Simcha is, Ki yoimru aleichem b'neichem. Your child is talking to you. Your child is having a conversation with you. Your child is asking you questions. There's dialogue. There's a relationship. There's a connection. He wants to know. He wants to understand. You have an opportunity to tune into his world. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe more than once. He says there are four sons. He says in our generation there's a fifth son. The fifth son is the one who doesn't show up at the Seder table. The Russia shows up. The Sheni Yedelishal shows up. The Tam shows up. There's a child who doesn't show up. He says, that's our generation. You have a fifth child. He's screaming, but he's talking to you. He's having a conversation with you. Cherish it. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. Ah, that's a simcha. That you could teach, you can inspire, you can bond, you could connect. You can go into his world and say, I'm here for you. I want to listen to you. I want to understand you. And you'll fulfill the mitzvah. And if you notice, that is the first child Moshe Rabbeinu talks about. The Chachem he gets to in Veschanah. Takes 40 years to get to the Chachem. Who is the first child he addresses? The Russia, the rebellious one. That's the first one you have to address. A school that doesn't address that child. A home that doesn't address that child. A community that doesn't address that child. It's failing. It's privilege. It's duty. It's a simcha I can talk to this child. And I'm going to contrast this and show you two approaches. I'm going to contrast this and show you two approaches, my dear friends. Approach number one and approach number two. Approach number one. I get an email. A 10-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl starts displaying apathy to Judaism. 10 years old, she says she's not interested in Yiddishkeit. Now I know that today, teenage years begins at age 7. Usually 6. When you're 6, you're a teenager. Once you hit 14, you're already going on 90. So I wasn't so surprised, but still 10 is 10? Already at 10 years, she says, I'm not interested. Today she's 14, and she completely left Yiddishkeit. In terms of behavior, in terms of uh, diet, in terms of dress, in terms of a lot of, uh, in terms of various issues. The parents are true, true Erlicha people. Honest, humble, refined Edel, menschlich, generous, kind, wonderful home, nice mention, and good parents. They couldn't figure it out. What? What went wrong? One therapist, another therapist, and third therapist. Tons of money on therapy. 
was their molestation, was their abuse. There's some trauma, a mental challenge, a psychological challenge, a neurological, something, what's going on? The daughter is alienated. Mamish now, a few weeks ago, she told them what happened. She's a very, very sensitive person, very perceptive, very smart, very spiritual. She was eight years old and she was sitting in the classroom. I quote the email. She did something wrong. Rabbi Jacobson, he says, I'm embarrassed to tell you what she did because it was such a narishkeit. It was so stupid, it was so ridiculous that I'm pushing embarrassed to write to you what she did. I'm embarrassed. It was nothing. But she did something wrong. And the teacher saw it. And the teacher comes over to her. And in front of the whole class, the teacher tells this child, I never ever met somebody who has a Yetzirah as big as yours. And the girl tells her parents, at that moment I decided I will prove my teacher right. That's what I'm doing. I am proving my teacher right. Contrast this to Reb Moshe Leib Sosever. Reb Moshe Leib Sosever asks, What's this idea of Pesach, which means leaping, jumping, skipping? What did we learn in Yeshiva, you remember? You put the blood on the sides, on the two temples, the mezuzahs and the mashkev, the roof. Hashem comes to the house, he says, ah, a Jewish home, boom, skips to the Egyptian home. We call it Pesach, which means to jump, to leap, to skip. What's this all about? means as follows when the Reboi Shalom arrived to a Jewish home you know what he started to do I'll say it in Yiddish and then I'll translate when Hashem was going over the homes, when he came to a Jewish home, he started to jump and to dance. Ah, here a Jew lives, here a Jew lives. That's why it's called Pesach. That captures the holiday. Not just a trick, he learned hopping tag. He started to jump on the Jewish home. Ah, here a Jew lives. So imagine the teacher going over to the girl and starting to dance and jump and say, ah, here infinity lives. Here in your heart God lives. Here in your heart so much beauty, so much holiness, so much potential lives. Ah! Here lives a Jew. Here lives a beacon of infinity. A chelek elekami mal. That's what Pesach is. That's how you sit down to your Seder table. Have a wonderful week. Uh-huh. Now, I want you to look in the source sheets and just read two Rishonim. Both lived in the 1300s. Both lived in the 13th century. Both from Spain. You have Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, who lived in Barcelona. And you have also a Jew from Barcelona, Rabbi Aaron Halevi, who wrote the Sefer HaChinuch. 
It's longer commentaries. I took a few paragraphs. I'm going to read it fast. I just want you to get the impression of how they wrote about the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And I know I'm still supposed to answer the other questions. So, let's do this swiftly. Ramban Parsha's boy. A beautiful, beautiful Ramban. He captures so much of history. Va'ato, I'll read fast and translate swiftly. Va'ato I'm going to tell you a principle about many mitzvahs. Hine. From the days of Enosh, there started to be many errors in humanity about Emunah, about truth. Remember, for the Rishonim, Emunah meant, meant truth, not belief. Emunah was Imun, truth, not belief, truth. Some say God never existed, the world was always here. Others say God exists, but he doesn't know what's happening here. It's a third opinion says, no, God may know what's happening, but he doesn't care. There's no providence, there's no reward, there's no punishment. God doesn't care about what happens. Three different opinions. There's no God, God doesn't know, he's detached. God knows, but he doesn't care, there's no relationship. When Hashem, with an individual, with a community, makes a miracle that changes the order of the world, all the three above opinions become nullified. They realize there's a God who creates the world, who knows, and who supervises. And if he first says he's going to do it before he does it, he tells a prophet, you learn something else, a fourth thing. And that is that there are prophets who actually communicate God's will, and that authenticates the fact that there is a Navi, if he knew to say that it's going to happen before it's going to happen. The Ramban brilliantly brings three psukim that demonstrate these three ideas. Hashem says about these miracles, you should know that I am God inside the earth. In other words, I supervise it. I care about what happens. I'm in charge. Number two, the world is mine. In other words, I created it. Number three, you should know that there's nobody like me and the study that I'm the ruler. Nobody prevents. In other words, I know what's happening and I can stop everything because all this the Egyptians denied. <speaking in Hebrew> Because Hashem is not going to do a miracle like this. Every single generation in front of every person. That would defeat the whole purpose of humanity and nature. 
So therefore, he told us to always remember what we saw and give it over to our children and they to their children. Till the last generation. He was very stringent. Eating chametz is very serious. Abandoning the Pesach is serious. So therefore he told us that all of these miracles should be on our hands, between our eyes, write it on our doors, mention it in the morning and at night, make a sukkah, and all the mitzvahs that commemorate Yitzhak Mitzrayim. As you probably know, there are close to a hundred mitzvahs in Judaism that are performed as a commemoration of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Like Shabbos, like Tefillin, like Pesach, of course, like Sukkot, like love to the strangers, not lending interest, just to name a few. They're all focused on internalizing the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This is quite the essence and the story that defines much of Judaism. This is to instill in the Jewish people the awareness of what they experienced as a people. A Jew buys a mezuzah for one zuz, for $25, puts it on his door, and has an intention for what it is. He already acknowledged the creation of the world, the knowledge of the Creator, His providence, prophecy, and he believes in all aspects and all corners of the Torah. And the Ramban continues even more to elaborate this point. Number two, Sefer Achinuch Mitzvah Tazayin Loi Lishber Etzim Mikol Atzmas HaPesach. Don't break a bone when you're eating the carbon Pesach. Why not? What happens if you take a bone? You're eating your lamb chops. You take a bone. You know what people do? Yeah, they smutchket of the bainer. You 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 like to suck the marrow out of suck the marrow out of life, and you break the bone. No, you're not allowed to break the bone. Loi Sesh Berubai. The reason is There's a branch that comes out of this idea. You hear? It's not aristocratic. It's not respectful for princes, for leaders of the world to schlep bones and to break them like dogs. People who are poverty-stricken, people who are starving, do this. But royal princes don't do this. Every year, when we once again became that unique nation, a kingdom of princes and a holy people, Every year it's worthy for us to do deeds that demonstrate this unique royal greatness and empowerment that the Jewish people achieved then. By doing it and imagining it, it becomes entrenched in our souls forever. You actually become a king. 
by not breaking the bone, by behaving in this way, you actually become a royal person. You become a king. Why would God tell us to do all these mitzvahs to remember the miracle? Just think about it and that's it. Imagine what Pesach would be. Instead of cleaning your house and buying matzah, cleaning chametz, making a seder, tell the Jews, gather together for Pesach for 10 minutes and meditate. Meditate on freedom. Wouldn't it be much more interesting, much nicer, much cheaper? You wouldn't even have to go to a hotel for Pesach. Da, no. You're not going to chap me here from Chachma. In other words, don't think I didn't think about this and you're telling me something intelligent. You're thinking like a child. Why? Da. And the Chinuch gives here a very deep psychological truth. People are affected by their actions. People's thoughts and feelings follow their actions, whether good or bad. You can have a person, in his heart, he's a complete Russia. All day he thinks bad thoughts. But you know what happens? A whole day he actually does good things. Even for the wrong reasons. You know what's going to happen? The Chinuch says, he's going to become a good person. His emotions will change. His thoughts will change. You can have a person inside his heart, he's a complete tzaddik, but in reality, what is he doing all day? All day he's doing vicious or empty things, and he will become an empty person. Our hearts follow our hands. Our hands don't always follow our hearts. Hence, by training a people, to behave a certain way, to live Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim through actions, eating matzah, eating matzah, saying that God, drinking wine, not breaking the bone of the carbon Pesach, the Chinuch says that's the most powerful way of making something become entrenched in their hearts forever. This is how the Chinuch understands the secret of all the mitzvahs. Somebody once asked me, maybe it was through Kishif. Maybe Moshe did it through Kishif. So you ever heard of Kishif taking four million people out of a slavery? You can't do through Kishif. Kishif became a machin. Yeah, Mitzrayim was not were known for... Uh, and Mitzrayim were known for... The right. So they, they knew what Kishif is. Yeah, yeah. He took them all out through Kishif? What did he take out through Kishif? Marcus Pchoyde's Kishif. Everybody died through Kishif. There is a stone they discovered. They say that the Jews are dead. Oh, yeah. The first mention of a Jew in history outside of Torah is that Israel is dead, his seed is no more. The first time we're mentioned, it's an obituary. <laughs> the first time Jews are mentioned, it says an obituary. Yeah. yeah, they say, forget, the seed of Israel is no more. That's the earliest reference to the Jewish people, is that we're gone. But where are we today and where are they today? That's interesting. So, but they don't have the story of Yitzhak Muslim. Forget, the Jews died. 
So, so punk farken. Good. They say Israel is no more. We're the only people who okay. argue with this. Same with the only people who argue with this. With what? The guy who recognized it. Oh, you see, it's The Christians believe it. The Muslims believe it. The Jews have an issue with it. Back. Karagil. Because from them it does demand everything. Huh? From them it does demand everything. Number one, but also they don't have a Jewish Yetzirah. Yeah. Yetzirah, they might not. Huh? Yetzirah, they might not. Was? Yetzirah, what this girl has. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have scales, you for sure have fins, but not the other way around. This is a Mishnah in Chulin and Nida, the other thing is that the Chazer is a very good Three, the Gummel, the Shafa, the Darnevis, that they have Mali Gator, they chew their cod, but they don't have split hooves. But the Chazer is a very good Split hooves, but he doesn't chew its cod. That he mentioned. So the Gemara says, the Gemara says, Vietas Meshir Abenin Gavust, he was a Tsayad, he was a hunter. He was a hunter. Snapper because this doesn't say clearly. He says he gives two simonim. Snapping the the, the, the chazal That's why I didn't mention it. The other one you have in Shmini. Yeah, yeah. Chulin and Nida. We say the Chulin and we say the Nida. It's a mission. Call she yesh like kaskasis, yesh like snapper. The normal individual. In the, in the way that it worked until, until then. I was once giving a Shia somewhere in a particular community. So somebody, uh, what happened? So somebody uh, says that uh, it's, it's against Torah to be Makad of a Pashay Yisrael. There's, like you said, there's a certain point where you have to cut them off, and there's no mitzvah of Abbas Yisrael, a mitzvah of Sinna, Tachlis Sinna Sneisim, Oya Hashem Sinura. Etc. Loivim hoyoli, and uh, and you have to be merachik, and it's it's it's, it's an aveda, it's an iser chamor to altis dabek l'rosha, and it's chibu with poishi yisrael, it's a scarvus l'rishoyim, it's the worst thing, and it's mamrish a terrible, terrible aveda to be kind of such yidin. So I asked this yid, I said, we're not going to now get into my mother chazal and psukim. You'll bring me one. I'll bring for each one you'll bring. I'll bring you another hundred. Fine. Everyone could find any Maimon Chazal that they want to prove their shit. That's a different huh? Whatever. That's a different I'm not going to get in exactly how, how you define what's Emes, what's not Emes. Well, this is a different Thursday Yeah, night. it's a good shayla. I said, I'm just going to ask you to be honest. If you had a daughter who's 21 years old and she left Yiddishkeit and you hear that she's in India, she's meditating with the Buddhists and she wants to stay there. She has absolutely no shaykhah to Yiddishkeit, nothing. It's your daughter or your granddaughter or your niece, whatever it is. And there's a Chabad Shliach in Mumbai in India. And he calls you up 
And he says, you know, I met a girl. She tells me she's a Jewish girl. She tells me her last name. She tells me her father lives for Mokamploini. And I wanted to give you a gurus. And you know what? I invited her for Shabbos. And she was so happy. She said she's coming for Shabbos Friday night and Shabbos then. She's going to come to Shul before. I said, Mr. Chayre Shemayim, would you tell this Chabat Shliya? Chalila! Call her up right now and say you're not invited to my house. Hiskarvus Lirishoyim, Altishabala Rasha, your children shouldn't see a Marsha, Samachshefa, Shiksa, Shiksa Arois. And if she comes to your house, throw her out. Like I would do in my house. To other girls. I would scream Shiksa and I would throw her out. And if I could throw a rock, I'll throw a rock also. That's what Yiddish Kaidim, Mayridin Veloy Mailin. Would you say that to the Shliach? Or you would say, wow. I can't thank you enough for doing this. The Abraham says, I'll detention. And you'll send them a check also. I said, now be honest with me. And tell me, what, what are you going to answer? So he says, A tochte is anders. A tochte is anders. So my tochte. It's my daughter. Of course I'm going to say to be Mikado. So I told him, Efsheh. Is by the Lubavitcher Rebbe and an all the Yiddish kinder given seine kinder. Efsha can start over again. No, but it has an impact. Some some children maybe see that they can get everything, even when they're on the other side of the aisle. So there's no. You explained that that's not everything. I want the answer. I don't have the question. I don't get it. Uh, I don't think it has a negative impact. If Khalila... Let's say a 13-year-old... Let me give you a marshal. I understand. That, that he has a, a friend that is 13 years I understand. Out on the street that has everything. So that's why we have to speak to our children. Let's take in Gashmis. If Chas Vashon is a child, yeah, who has an illness. A child in the family, Khalila, Rahman al-Islam. He can't walk. He can't function. Everything has to be done for him, yeah? You have to feed him. You have to take him to the bathroom. You have to dress him. You have to bring him into bed. Are you going to say, don't keep him in the house, even if you could, you have the help and you have the nurses and you have the money, why? Because all the kids are going to come to you and say, oh, take me also to the bathroom, oh, wipe me also, oh, take me to bed, oh, feed me, oh, well, we're not going to school. No parent is going to say that, why? Because you explain to your child, yeah, unfortunately, this child is suffering. Yes, he needs more attention, he needs more nurture, because he's suffering. And for Kert, you turn this child into a helper of the parents, like you see B'muchish, what children do to help with this kid. Now, yeah, you have to be sensitive. You can't make the kid jealous, and everything should only be about the sick kid, because then he feels resentful. So it's a Nisoyan, it's a big Nisoyan. But nobody's going to say that the child is going to become a handicapped kid because there's a sick kid in the Mishpach. When Chas Vashom the Mishpach is somebody that's struggling, the kids have to understand. This boy is struggling, this girl is struggling. And you are part of the help. You turn them into shluchim. You turn them into leaders. You don't make them victims. Every child has to be a shliach. A shliach to help this child. Fakert, you use it as a source of strength. And you know what these kids are going to remember forever? That they had a father and a mother. That the love to their children was unconditional. That's what they're going to remember. That's what they're going to come away with. They're not going to come away with... 
I can get away with everything. Okay, of course, once in a while, all kids do it. Even in families where there's no challenges. Kids, this. If I care, they'll come away knowing how you treat family. I'll tell you something uh, Avi Fischoff told me. You know, he deals with twisted parenting. And they had a child who went over the derech. And they wanted to throw him out of the house. And he said, keep him in the house. They said, there's one problem. The problem is shidduchim. We want a good shidduch for the siblings. You know, shidduchim is a great sazach. They're going to find out that one of the bochim is an up from derech. It's going to shut the shidduch. And he says, you know, you have to also rely a little bit on God when it comes to shidduchim. Abish is abyssal, not a lot, but... Abyssal, epis abyssal, abyssal. You don't, you're not makrav your child to the mailach because the social kehillah and shidduchim. This is your kid. Convince them, convince them. And uh, they, they, they left the boy in the house. Okay. So a few months later, they did a very beautiful shidduch with a very nice family, mamers to their liking. At the l'chaim, they're sitting with the, after the chasana, by the shepherd brachas. He heard this from the father, because he convinced the father to keep the son home. The father tells him about the shepherd brachas, so they, you know, it's already after the chasana. You know, it's ketov leiv ha-melech bayoyin abyssal. So I just want to ask you a shayla. You know, you come from such a chash of a family. And you agreed with the shidduch, and it didn't bother you that we have a we have a bacharel and also a girl that uh, left Yiddishkeit. He says it did, it did. It bothered me very much. So he said, "Why did you agree for them to date and meet and everything?" He said, "I'll tell you. I went to Israel, and I went to Rabbi Steinman, the Baron Leib Steinman, and I asked him. I said, we have a shidduch with this family, but they have this boy and this girl. You think we should do it?'" So he says, I have one child to ask you. How do they treat that boy? What do they do with that boy? He says, they mummers, they treat him, they keep him in the house, he's close with the family, I found out. He says, Oy, bazoi, can't stop machin the shidduch. Who did they ask? Who did they ask? He says, if, if he's home, he says, this family, this, this family you want a shidduch for. taking credit for the more fish? Ah. <laughs> 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 This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.